This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So this is a story about workers at Google, and it's a fascinating one, Jason, about how while Google publicly supported employees who protested company policies, quietly behind the scenes it was asking the U.S. government to narrow legal protection for workers who are organizing online. All i got to say is, wow. Josh Idelson is labor reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Josh, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. So lay it out for us. What exactly do we know about what was going on? So Google employees drew international attention over the past year with protests, including a walkout with thousands of people pushing for changes to the company's governance and its handling of sexual misconduct. Google publicly embraced those efforts and announced changes afterwards. What's been going on behind the scenes, however, is in an unrelated case, Google has been asking the National Labor Relations Board, the federal agency in the U.S. that protects workers' rights, to undo a protection that some of those same activists say is very important to them. That's a legal protection for workers to engage in organizing activities using the company email system. And this is a big deal both because of Google's prominence, but also presumably as a precedent, I would imagine. I mean, you look across all sorts of labor issues, Josh. What what are we to make of, of the import here? So Purple Communications, the precedent in question, came under the Obama era at the Labor Board in 2014, And it's a sweeping, significant decision that says there is, in almost all circumstances, a right for employees to engage in organizing activities, not just trying to form a union, but all kinds of collective action around workplace issues using their employee email accounts. That's important, particularly in situations like Google's workforce, where people are spread all over the globe, and many of them say they don't have personal emails for each other. So what Google asked the NLRB to do in these filings that we (laughs) obtained via FOIA is to undo the Obama-era precedent and go back to the one that was more restrictive under George W. Bush. So what does Google say when asked about this? Google says they are not lobbying, and of course it depends on the definition of the word lobbying. They say that they made the argument they did in these legal filings as a potential defense, among other defenses, against allegations from the NLRB that they think are unfounded. And they say that they have one of the most open workplaces in the world and that they have all kinds of ways for employees to make their voice heard. Well, and it's interesting, too, and you bring this up in your story, Josh, You know the, the relationship that Google has with the U.S. and with its workers, this sort of like triangle triangle of sorts, is complicated. And, and you bring up 
the idea that Google employees protested pretty vigorously a Pentagon contract uh, that Google had. That seemed like an important moment uh, in the company's culture. You know, you go back all the way to the founding and don't be evil and all the sort of bromides that this company was founded on. Where does it go from here? And how does this company kind of wrestle with essentially who it is in, in the face of these big questions? Well, this is a company that's been roiled over the past year by a wave of protest and activism from workers. Google has prided itself on a culture of openness and room for disagreement. But the kind of disagreement, vocal, concerted, public, that it has been confronted with from employees over the past year is really in a whole different category. And the company has had to consider issue by issue, whether it's a Pentagon contract or treatment of subcontracted workers or sexual harassment, where to bend and where not to in response to employees, while at the same time confronting issues being raised by employees at a very different place on the political spectrum, like the one involved in this labor board case, who claim that Google is too left-wing and too, in their words, politically correct. And now, since we published the story and as we were reporting the story, we heard from people at Google and elsewhere who are upset about the position Google took in this case and see this as another reason for distrust between workers there and the company. So that's something that will continue to play out. Well, and what's interesting in this environment where we've talked about that search and social media companies are under increased scrutiny and may have to start getting ready for even more regulatory oversight. You have that going on. Uh, at the same time, I was just uh, reading earlier about five of the largest U.S. tech companies pouring a combined $64.2 million into federal lobbying efforts uh, last year. This is a new ethics report that's out. Google alone made up about one-third of that total, spending more than $21.2 million in 2018, up 17% from the previous year. Um, So my point is they're having more sway and influence when it comes to Washington, uh, when it comes to new policies. And I just think that's a pretty significant trend there. Absolutely. These are huge players. They are not just scrappy little upstarts. They are corporate giants and they are being subjected to scrutiny by the media and by their own employees that sometimes involves workers who work there coming to conclusions that what's happening really contradicts the values they associate with the company. Josh Idelson is one of our labor reporters following Google very closely here. Great reporting here. You can read the story uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com. Google uh, taking it up with the U.S. to try and limit protection for some of those activist workers who've brought a lot of big issues to the fore there at Google. And it, and it just goes back to kind of transparency at companies, right? Uh, you know, you think things are getting a little bit more transparent. And again, you know, there's maybe some to be known in terms of what's going on, but it's certainly fascinating to hear this and hear what's going on maybe publicly versus what's going on behind the scenes. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser along with Jason Kelly, and we are Bloomberg Radio. Your pride, a dancer, a dancer for money. Do what you want me to do. 
Privacy, data protection, keeping that data and all user data private, it's a key issue in the high-tech world. Let's dig a little bit deeper into that. Michelle Dennity is Chief Privacy Officer at Cisco, joining us on the phone from Silicon Valley. Hey, Michelle. Um, yeah, it's an interesting world, and we were just talking uh, a little bit about Google, and they have certainly been uh, on the radar of regulators around the globe in terms of uh, the amount of information uh, being collected, the use of it, Facebook also, many companies. Tell us a little bit about uh, a report you guys recently did, and you've done it before, uh, your Privacy Maturity Benchmark Study. What exactly did you do? Who'd you talk to and what'd you find out? Yeah, so thank you for having us on. I've never been you know, introduced with Tina Turner, so now I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's first time for everything, Michelle. Yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Good. So this is our, 20, our 2019 Privacy Maturity Benchmark Study. We had a couple of different questions, both on upside and downside of privacy and privacy investments. So what we did starting a couple of years ago was – we have a double-blind study. So this is, you know, think about this as all correlation rather than causation necessarily. Double-blind study, 3,000 customers around the world, 18 countries across all major industries. So we wanted to take a very broad stripe, asking questions about how mature they self-perceived themselves to be, and then what is the impact? So things like how long does it take, you know, do you recognize a slowdown for business, to close deals in business for data-centric things, customers with questions about security and privacy. And then are you seeing breaches? What's your downtime? How many records are compromised? So we looked at that both as upside to me is, wow, if I can make it less friction, less sales delays, that's a win. And then I also want to decrease the number and, and length of time that I'm having breaches. So we're finding that the investment in privacy and in privacy governance, particularly in a world of GDPR or the general data protection regulation out of the EU, we're starting to see people seeing results in a total cost of breaches going down, delays in doing business going down, and we're seeing this spread across the globe. And so, Michelle, is that owing to companies just investing more heavily because they had to, owing to something like uh, GDPR, which you mentioned, which I felt like grabbed a lot of headlines uh, last year and, and is mostly related to the EU, as you said? Or is there a heightened sense that this is important to customers and consumers or both? What's the driver here? I want to say that it's probably both, but we don't. It's still early enough time. But I think certainly programs like this drove awareness to GDPR and the looming enforcement deadline of May 25 of 2018. So there's more awareness. So more people are saying that they're noticing data friction. They're noticing a slowdown of business with questions. So that's on one side of just being aware of it. And then the second thing is there are a lot of very specific things, understanding where your data was in the world. Who are your third parties who are helping to either provide you data or consuming data? So that awareness, those controls that you had to put in place, and really putting an executive mind to this, a strategic mind to your data, I think is all having very interesting and positive results overall, but certainly spurred on by the potentials Mm. of fines as big as 4% of your global global intake. Hey, Michelle, just quickly, one last question. Uh, are, are the people that you surveyed, I don't know if you asked a question along these lines, but are they anticipating greater 
regulatory oversight? I mean, obviously the GDPR is all, you know already out there, and that's a pretty big deal, no doubt about that. But I'm just curious, as we look around the globe, are they anticipating even more oversight uh, when it comes to officials? Absolutely. What I've been saying is, you know, if you like the way GDPR looks and smells, buckle up. <laughs> we're seeing countries as far as China and Japan are saying that they are 40% ready for GDPR. That's not just because they have a ton of European customers. It's really because we're anticipating this to be a global currency. People are looking at data as leverage and power and key asset management to drive their businesses forward. Michelle Dennity is the Chief Privacy Officer excuse me, at Cisco, joining us on the phone from Silicon Valley. The report is the 2019 Privacy Maturity Benchmark Study. We really appreciate your time. You know, I have to say, it does take me back to uh, the conference we were able to participate in down at the 9-11 uh, mm-hmm. Memorial and Museum. We talked to Frank Bizignano, the CEO uh-huh. of First Data. Uh, and, you know, this is so front and center. The amount of investment that's going in, in part because the cost, both obviously reputationally, but the actual financial cost of a breach is just massive. I always think about, was it a few years ago that Jamie Dimon said, you know, what are, you know, what are the things that kind of keep me up at night? And it was concerns about cybersecurity yeah. and security issues. And it has continued to be front and center uh, when it comes to certainly financial firms in every firm. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So this week in the magazine, a bunch of great stories, um, including some deep dives with uh, some CEOs. But we want to get into, first of all, the cover story, which talks about the government shutdown. Of course, as we know, the longest one here in the U.S. on record. Jill Weber is in the house. He's editor of Bloomberg Business Week in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. So let's start there because it is a really smart story, cover story by Josh Green, who follows you know all things politics and watches things from the campaign trail as well. So tell us about um, tell us about the story. So we wanted just to have uh, a moment to look at what feels like the only thing any of us can kind of like <laughs> watch because it's. Well, like I mean, this we're sitting here watching thing. it on the we're television screen right, right now. And like yeah. ditto for the last thirty four days. Right, this and, is like our Brexit, and it just kind of keeps going, right? And yeah. so we we wanted to we ended up talking to Josh about it, and his take was like, we got to do a forward look at this. But in order to look forward, we kind of have to look backward as well. And one of the takeaways of the article that I thought was really interesting, and it's like for all the the TikToks of everything happening right now, especially as we head into this vote, one of the reasons that this is so significant is that for all the shutdowns that we've ever seen, this is the first led effectively by the executive branch. Right. Everything else has originated from the legislative branch, which has also sort of ended up showing its limitations. And so when you have this executive-led branch and, you know, there's that amazing quote that Trump said before this thing even started where he he was willing to own this, it really has changed, I think, the dynamics that uh, have helped to resolve previous shutdowns. And those same dynamics have changed now and no one knows the way out. Right. And on top of that, now that we're post midterms, Right. You can see this polarized politicization of America, and there's really no center anymore. And the center is where the resolution comes from. So not only do you have an executive-led shutdown, you also have a legislative branch that really can't find a middle. And, you know, we'll see what happens with these votes here momentarily. Uh, my sort of 
hunch is that this is not going to get resolved yet. You know, like, and, and that's the bigger takeaway with Josh is that we're, we sort of entered a new era of how sideways government can go. Well, and what's interesting, too, is I love how he digs into, okay, the wall, obviously the sticking point right now. And, you know, the president, this was a big issue for him on the campaign trail. And so he wants to be able to deliver it come the 2020 election, say, I did it. But the thinking of if, thinking is that if he doesn't get it done now, does he then, does it become part of the next argument with President Trump, such as the debt ceiling? And that's not that far off, right? Yeah. Like, you know, the, this right. other looming date on the horizon is effectively March 1st when the debt ceiling comes into play again. So even if there's some resolution that we get through this little moment right now of you know 34 days or 38 days or 42 days or whatever it ends up being, this could become an issue again very, very soon. Right. And it's with great- much, much, much greater stakes even right. than what yes. we're doing with now. Right. And so we commend the story to you and also the cover. It's a very arresting image. I know it grew out of your brain, Joel. It's really uh, really a, a nice uh, cover. I won't spoil it, and I know that you can probably find it on your Twitter feed if you haven't tweeted it out already. Yeah, you can find it all over the interwebs. It's there become pretty pretty popular, but the idea was to take a uh, image of the White House and take away everything, make it all dark, except for one window, for where one there's window. a little flicker there you go. of, That's a great of, cover. of someone watching television there and tweeting go. at the same time, probably. <laughs> and Elsewhere in the magazine, you have a great sit-down uh, with the CEO of Mars. Uh, this was an event held uh, right here at Bloomberg headquarters. It's a debrief uh, on with a, a CEO and a company that, candidly, we all know but don't know that much about. It's privately held and family-owned. Family-owned, 107 years old. Uh, unbelievable, right? A 107-year-old company. And when you think about the portfolio of brands that that, that Mars and Kaz, there's the really amazing ones like the M&Ms and the Snickers and the Milky Ways that the Twixes, Carol, you're like smiling at all this because you, people was, have affinity for these I brands, know. right? And they've been around forever. And, and it's an amazing, and you know, Mars is a $35 billion yeah, uh, uh, business every year, revenue, you know? Which is amazing in an environment where people are pushing back, you feel like, against sugary things. And that gets to this bigger uh, part of the interview. Um, which uh, is absolutely worth spending some time with, where he talks about the portfolio that they've really expanded. And here's the thing that nobody actually knows, I think. As much as Mars is in the candy business... It's actually always been in the pet space. And that was, that was certainly the, wait, what, right. yes. moment yes, for me exactly. reading this. Since the 1930s, they've had a footprint there, and they've really expanded that business within the last decade or so. And it's not just in the places that you sort of would expect it to be, pet food being mm-hmm. one. They've also, um, there's a, a VCA, which is a veterinarian business. So they're actually, they've acquired that recently, and now they're in the service space. So it's also this broadening of the portfolio from manufacturing-based things where he says, you know, one of the, if you really boil down our business, we take raw ingredients, the corns and the cocos of the world, and turn them into brands people love. But they've also had this whole service thing. So the bigger takeaway was he, you know, 35-plus billion-dollar business right now. In 10 years, he says it doubles. It's amazing. It's a really good read. Strong issue uh, of the magazine. You can hear much more about it on our weekend show where we also uh, got a chance to catch up uh, with Josh Green. That, of course, airs uh, all weekend. Read both those stories. Uh, Joel's interview with the Mars CEO and the cover story uh, on the terminal and on .com today. Right. And on radio over the weekend and on TV, we also had a snippet of that interview that uh, Joel did with Grant Reed. So really good stuff. It's fun. And you learn, I won't give it away, what his favorite candies are and whether he's a left, Do you know you left can, hand twix or right hand twix. You can bring pets to work. 
pet Mars, too, because of their pet business. Well, cool it doesn't that? surprise me. As long as the pets don't get into the chocolate, right? That would be Yes, that's a dangerous. I'm out in the cold. So out in the cold, uh, yeah, that's how it feels uh, when it comes to so many government workers still out of work or still kept away from their jobs because of this partial U.S. government shutdown. We did just have a headline cross uh, the Bloomberg about the Senate blocking the president's plan to end the shutdown and fund his border wall. There were two measures being voted on in the Senate, one put forth by the Republicans, another by the Democrats, both expected to fail. Let's, though, get the latest on this. Kevin Whitelaw is on top of it all, U.S. government deputy managing editor at Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from our bureau in the nation's capital. So, uh, Kevin, again, Again, uh, here's the headline, Senate rejecting uh, the president's plan to open the government by a vote of 51 to 47. Uh, this is kind of playing out as we expected, yes? Yeah, so far it is. This um, was this requires 60 votes to, to get something through the Senate, um, and uh, they, fell, they fell nine short. There were several Republicans who voted no and only one Democrat, I believe, who voted yes. So you're um, now looking at a vote on the, a Democratic proposal, which to be to be clear, is basically the, essentially the same bill, bill that the Senate passed by voice vote last year, um, aimed at keeping the government open through February 8th. So this was essentially a non-controversial measure right before the shutdown began, and it is expected to go down in the vote that just started now in the House floor. And so where where does this leave us, Kevin? I mean, there has been some speculation, and maybe all of us are just hoping for some optimism, but I felt like I was reading and hearing a little bit more last night and this morning about, well, these votes are going to fail, but maybe in that failure there is some movement toward compromise. You saw the president relent last night in his showdown, his sort of State of the Union showdown of sorts with Speaker Pelosi. Uh, what do you think? What are you hearing? So, um, I, look, I, everyone, I think, wants, is looking for signs yeah. of motion because they want to see it. The vote that just happened was the first vote the Senate has taken to end the shutdown. Right. The very first one since the shutdown started aimed at doing anything to end it. So it, I, that qualifies as progress, <laughs> I guess, in, in, in Washington these days. Um, I, I think you've, uh, this at least restarts the conversation among senators about what it might actually take to do it. You've right. got, you're going to have the two, out, two bills, one with no wall funding um, at all, one with with um, with 5.7 for the wall. Now there's a question of okay, what what might it what might it actually take? In theory, that conversation starts. You're going to we're expecting an effort after this vote fails by a bipartisan effort by senators to try to put an amendment on that would reopen the government for three weeks to allow for negotiations with the government open and to talk border security. Not like that's expected to be any it's not that different from what they're voting on. Right now, probably isn't going to change anything, but you can start to see people trying to find some way through this to get at least something of uh, something resembling normality um, back in place, at least for a period of time. Yeah, I feel like as a citizen of this wonderful country, it's a little embarrassing that we kind of can't figure this out. Um, I'm curious, Kevin, because we I, I feel like it's a little bit surprising that we've actually seen concessions from the president, right? You know, he wrote the book, The Art of the Deal, and, you know, kind of hanging, you know, standing tough, if you will, on those issues that are important when you're making some kind of deal. So it's interesting to see that he, you know, made that concession to offer uh, an extension to the DACA program, you know, that he backed off uh, in terms of, you know, doing another place to do the State of the Union. It's just kind of interesting that we're seeing these moves, no? 
Well, I mean, you know, I think that, that you've watched this thing drag on for, for a very long time. You're starting to see people get a little worried about the optics of how this all is playing out. And, yeah. And, and you know, um, the senators on the margins in terms of the ones basically in the middle, if you like, the sort of more moderate Republicans and some of the more moderate Democrats are all finding themselves in incredibly uncomfortable positions. The president is clearly feeling pressure his own way. Um, and, you know, obviously the, the, the tit-for-tat fight with the Speaker of the House wasn't helping anything and wasn't getting um, – and wasn't helping him in the end. So his poll numbers have only gone down. They haven't gone anywhere else. And, and um, you know, that's, uh, that's going to be a real, real problem for him. And so who, who are the primary actors who can move this beyond the president? Because as you said, the Senate has not voted until today. Um, you know, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has, has only recently sort of reemerged, at least in a public way, as a negotiator or a player uh, in all this. Are eyes on him or eyes on the uh, senators who may be up for re-election or who are up for re-election in 2020 that they could move on the, on the Republican side? Who are people watching? I mean, look, everyone's actually watching. I mean, the president is the ultimate of course. person everyone's watching because he's going to have to sign something. At this point, we are very far away from a place where you're going to see uh, the Senate, let alone the House, vote to override um, a veto. And so, you know, everybody's trying to figure out where the president is on this. Yeah. This vote may or may not be something of a warning shot, right? I mean, we haven't seen yet how many senators are going to vote for this Democratic proposal. It's ongoing as we speak. But, you know, if they get within a few of, of 60 votes, then that tells you that they've got enough to pass it. That's not enough to override it. They need 67 to override a veto. So, you know, you're, 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 you at least have a beginning barometer of, of where people are and where the panic is. We we do expect several Republicans and all right. the Democrats to vote for this um, Democratic bill. And so that is going to be the first sign that there are, you know, that there's a level of concern and that mm. is only likely to build over time. All right, Kevin, good to check in with you. Kevin Whitelaw, U.S. Government Deputy Managing Editor at Bloomberg News on the phone from our bureau in Washington, D.C. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Eric Clark is portfolio manager at AccuVest Global Advisors, joining us uh, on the phone from San Francisco. So, Eric, nice to have you here. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the investment environment and how you see it, because it feels like there's a lot of negativity out there when people talk about the outlook for earnings and the outlook for the economy. How do you see it? Well, uh, hello. Uh, January certainly better than the last time we spoke in fourth quarter. December was pretty bad. January's pretty good from a stock perspective. But the, the, the data is pretty clear. It's getting less good. And I, I don't, uh, I'm not going to say recessionary, but certainly when you come off of a, a great year the last couple of years, it's just getting less good. And I think that's what prices were figuring out in Q4. And uh, technically now we're just retracing back some of that stuff. But I still think we have a lot of, of news to get through, economic right. data that's not being reported uh, that's probably, you know, continuing to kind of erode a little bit. And once the, the government shutdown 
gets uh, taken care of, I think a lot of that news will hit the hit the tape. Just checking out my notes, you say right now that 20% you should have as cash as a buffer. Is that pretty high based on what you normally would recommend? Well, normally, yeah. I mean, normally we run pretty fully invested, but mm. um, in, in about November of last year, we really just between the volatility increasing and the earnings and the the potential slowdown from uh, from China and, and the tariffs, we just didn't uh, feel it was prudent to be fully invested. And we still have that 20% cushion because not a lot's changed. I mean, technically, we're all we've done is just retrace. We haven't broken a downtrend yet. Earnings are still kind of slowing off of really good numbers. And we still have a few things to, to take care of. So to us, it just feels a little bit as we get into, into the heart of earnings, um, we're sure to see some, you know, some good reports like today's semis and, and some not so good guidance and things from other industries. So we want to have some cash on hand to take advantage of that pullback if it happens. And so what are you looking for, you know, when you when you figure out sort of as, as I think you've said, sort of who the haves and the, and the have nots are, you know, where some of the value may be? What are the main metrics you're looking for? Are there specific sectors that you think are ripest? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the cycle, you kind of have a separation between the good industries that are staying afloat and the good companies, and then the ones that are kind of the first to start falling and eroding, and those usually are second-tier companies. So, you know, if you look at the portfolio now, we're kind of barbell between the great and still continuing to do well, like a Lululemon, a Costco, Nike, Live Nation on the concert side, even Netflix's number I thought was pretty good. Uh, even Procter and Gamble on the consumer staple side. So, and we're barbelled on the other side with some. You know, it's been a pretty ugly last year, and actually they're starting to be intriguing because they're cheap now. They're well off their highs, and and you're starting to see some inflection on the earnings side. That would be like a Mohawk on the flooring side. Even even Home Depot. I still like Home Depot. Uh, some of the beer companies look pretty washed out. So we own Molson Coors. And then Johnson & Johnson had a pretty decent number, but the stock hasn't really budged since that talcum uh, news came out last in the fourth quarter. So right. there's, there's definitely some good opportunities on both sides. So where or when have you been buying? Did you buy right after Christmas Eve, or is it more you kind of wrote it out a little bit to see where we were going? I'm just curious where no, your I entry mean, point you remember, was. We were about 33% in cash the last time I was on. So yes, we did put some money to work. Uh, right, right close to the low. So, I mean, we bought some Netflix low. We're still holding that. We bought some TJ Maxx and Ross stores and five below on the, reta- the discount retailers, some of which we've traded out of. They were just 20% plus gains in a really short period of time. So we're down to about 20, I think 23 right now. So we put about 10% of cash to work. And I'm looking forward to putting more cash, but at lower prices, because I, I still think we need to retrace a little bit lower. Hmm. So talk to us about a couple of those names that you mentioned. Lulu is one that uh, Carol and I have looked at a lot uh, over the years. What are you seeing there? Such a fascinating retail play, but also really a lifestyle play in a lot of ways. For sure. I mean, it, athleisure, you know, the death of athleisure has uh, is greatly exaggerated. I mean, all you got to do is look at all these stores and see which ones are busy. Lulu was a madhouse in the fourth quarter for holiday shopping, and they had a blowout quarter, raised guidance, margins were strong. So, you know, there are certain companies that just are resonating with consumers. People are willing to pay up, so they have good pricing power. And, and you know, the winners probably – for, for 2019 are going to be those companies that have some growth, have some ability to, to keep pricing power, um, and Lulu is certainly right up there. And, and you know, obviously there's, there's other names, too. Nike still is doing strong. And yeah. look at, I, I love Live Nation concerts. People are still willing to pay 
to go to a concert, and it's not a cheap endeavor, but it's, you know, we all like our experiences. Isn't that amazing? The, the experiences thing, I think, is such an amazing point. And, you know, Jim Coulter from TPG, you know, gives us his predictions about the year ahead uh, every year. And going back to last year, the end of 2017, he was betting hard on experiences. They own Cirque du Soleil, right. uh, among other things. CAA, they're, they're an owner of, too. I mean, the, the this is this is one of these real-life sort of millennial trends. Uh, right, Eric? It is, but you know what's funny? Concerts, I just read, wrote a research report on Live Nation. I mean, I went to the, the Zach Brown Eagles concert in San Diego, and yeah. there were just as many baby boomers there as there right. were millennials and Gen Xers. So, it, you know, well, we, have, we all have a, a, pa- a global passion for music, and it would not shock me. I, I really think that Live Nation and Spotify or Amazon will probably eventually agree to get together because Interesting. It's, too, it's, it's too smart to put together the music streaming, which is where all the growth is, with the live events. Yeah. Well, you check out a Billy Joel concert right here at the Garden. I mean, you're right. It's baby boomers and it's their kids. Uh, you really get a mixed group of generations. It's, you know, and it's, and it's a fun Baby experience. boomers may be generous for the Billy Joel uh, <laughs> set, let's be honest. <laughs> we all all right. Yeah, I get... It's great entertainment. Yeah. There, but, but, you know, it speaks to – we've had this conversation a lot, Jason, about you look at the retail environment. We had a guest earlier this – I think it was earlier this week or was it last week? Just, you know, this whole idea of you walk into a mall or you walk into a store and you're like, it's the same old stuff. And I'd much rather spend money on an experience or going somewhere with my family. I don't know. That's- 100%. So, I, I mean, that, that puts a lot of pressure on retailers to really yeah. think about – the experience and the ones that get it right get big multiples and good stock prices and the ones that don't go the way of jc penny and sears well and you know this has been top of mind for me too and i know this is one of your uh, top holdings eric i just got back with my family from disney world and the experience there and candidly the amount of money that you spend for that experience uh pretty amazing eric clark portfolio manager acuvest global advisor joining us on the phone uh from san francisco always fun to catch up ears did not get ears <clears throat> the boys, Alice? Alice did not get ears. Oh, my God. But she has this cute little sweatshirt that has ears on a little Minnie Mouse thing. <laughs> so she's all covered. Don't, please don't worry about uh, how cute Alice is all the time. She's always cute. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.